tuning in to another episode of the One Man Show. I'm your host, Casey All right, everybody, how's everything going today? Today's episode four, part three, and we brought back uh, Dr. Yusuf Wanley. Thank you for coming back to the show. Pleasure. Pleasure Um, Really excited to have you back, talk more a little bit about uh, some of the things in Islam and uh, what it means to be an American Muslim. Uh, For those just tuning in, we're really sitting here talking about um, the main focus of this episode in this series is really to talk about the struggles of American Muslims. But the reason why we've been going into depth of why uh, some of the concepts in Islam and some of the like misconceptions of Islam I want to explain that to some of the listeners I'm trying to explain it to you guys out there so that you guys can understand that you know oh Muslims don't drink why, why don't Muslims drink oh Muslims don't eat pork well why don't Muslims you know some of these things and so that way when we dive deep into the struggles of American Muslims they understand oh okay well you know it's hard for an American Muslim or to go out there and and party why is it hard for them to party? Well, we don't drink. There's certain guidelines and rules, restrictions from this or that. You know what I mean? And so this is kind of some of the stuff that we're really diving in deep prior to that. So today I uh, have planned on getting diving deep in some questions with uh, Dr. Yusuf um, about the diet, you know, why, what we can and cannot eat, uh, which is a little bit relevant to what's going on in uh, the world right now. Um, marriage and dating, a lot of times, you know, it's hard for us to date the way Americans date and kind of some of the uh, concepts behind that Sharia. And so we'll talk about that a little bit more and kind of maybe just we're going to talk about, you know, a little bit about the terrorism that's going on overseas and why it's happening and what it really means, the definition of jihad. And then my favorite topic that I left for the last, which is science and nature and, and what are some of the scientific stuff that's, that's out there in, in, um, in, in the Islamic world. So, uh, once again, you know, thank you for coming back, and, for uh, and I know you're a super busy man, yeah, and, and doing a lot of stuff, and we really appreciate you, you. me and the listeners, a lot of feedback I've gotten, that they're, they, they love what you have said, they've learned a lot of new things, and, uh, and, and, and a lot of clarification, and I think that's what's most important, is the clarification of things. So, uh, without further ado, let's dive right in. Let's do it. So, uh, first thing is uh, the diet. You know, why why can't Muslims eat pork? A lot of a lot of there's a lot of other things that we can't eat as Muslims, but specifically, pork. You know, a lot of people know that we can't eat pork. Why? Sure. So I think that Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. I think that we should also, before we answer that directly, understand that the concept of swine and porks, uh-huh. or pork in general, is something that is shared. Uh, by the Jews and the Christians okay. and the Muslims. Now, what I mean by shared, I mean in a very traditional sense. Arguably, um, the Jewish tradition teaches that it's forbidden to eat. That's for sure. That's why they really focus on kosher. Mm. The Christian tradition has two camps, one that permit it and the other that forbids it. Currently? Yeah, currently, yeah. Oh, okay. And it's a traditional opinion as well, and they discuss it and they have their argumentations. Those that forbid it, you know, they use textual references straight from the from the Bible itself. And then as for Islam, we understand that we kind of are sharing that particular perspective and that it is true that swine and pork is forbidden as a normative diet, not in times of need. So in times of need, it's okay to eat. Mm. But in, a in norm- Islam. In Islam, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, in, in a normative sense, we're advised to abstain from and to stay away from. But in times of need, it's okay. 
what is a time of need? Um, there's a crisis okay. of food or hunger, or you're in a circumstance where potentially you have quite a bit of harm that can come about you, so you need some form of intake, etc. So the normative sense, we're advised to abstain from. Also, some of its byproducts is also a discussion when it comes to swine and pork. Mm -hmm. I think people get confused between, just as a side point, supplements, for example, gel-based supplements that have an ingredient known as gelatin. Yeah. Um, it's a deeper discussion. There is something uh, in Islam, it's a jurisprudent ruling or maximum for which that which is altered has been altered. So if it's original state, it might be not very clean or forbidden. If it goes through a processing, it becomes permitted. This is the Hanbali school of thought, among others as well. So gel capsules, you find scholars that permit it because it's been through an alteration. It's changed. Mm. So, for example, an, an old traditional example would be, let's say there is a plant or a fruit right. tree, a fruit tree that has been nourished by some form of... Uh, uncleanly water maybe urine was put into the dirt mm. or a form of stool right? okay and what happens is though it was nourished with maybe urine or stool the fruit that is produced from the tree is ripe and halal to eat it's permitted to eat so this theory okay is also applicable to rulings such as the concept of gelatin in its original state, maybe being forbidden, but going through a chemical alteration or changing or cleansing and coming out with something different makes it permissible to use. So I wanted to share that information just to clarify. Okay. So when we're saying um, swine is forbidden, we're actually talking about the meat of the swine, mm. especially the meat of the swine. And we're not necessarily talking about what's been originally from swine but changed or if someone needs to eat it out of a crisis, right. crises. Or, for example, the skin of the swine sometimes is utilized after being cleansed and maybe forms of leather like on a football or something of this nature. Yeah. That's a different discussion. Okay. So here we're just talking about, just like you said, the dietary component of it. So in the dietary sense, we're talking about its intake into our physical being. Uh, there are two approaches as to understanding why it's forbidden. Number one is a very traditional approach. It's called a sami'iyat. A sami'iyat is information and orders or calls, proclamations, that essentially a Muslim abides by, though they might not always know the hikmah, the wisdom behind it. Uh -huh. Okay. Second perspective is the discussion of the wisdom behind swine being forbidden in a normative sense. Okay. And this actually discussion is shared by Jews and the Christian scholars that hold the view that it is still forbidden to eat and Muslim scholars that hold the view that it's forbidden to eat. They get into science and they get into health and they get into the understanding and the pros and cons of the meat that is being taken in. You know, I can understand how back in the day they were like, this necessarily, they couldn't clean it or they couldn't keep it as clean as they can now. And I get that argument a lot. They're like, well, now is not like it was before. They they make sure that these things are processed yeah. and, and in meat plants and stuff like that. But it's still, it's still forbidden. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the process, even the concept that the processing and 
um, the cleansiness or the various drugs that they might use to mm -hmm. prevent sickness, among other things. Obviously, it's not perfect. Right. At the same time. Even nowadays. Even nowadays. And we have to understand that, okay, whatever tools they're using to prevent it or to keep it healthy, it's being placed into the meat's bloodstream. So as a result, what you take in, we understand we're actually usurping the chemicals of the animal you eat. So every animal you eat, you usurp its chemicals into your body. Right. So that's why not just swine is forbidden in Islam. Islam, is also forbidden. That is, for example, fanged creatures that eat meat like lions and tigers and bears. We're not allowed to eat either. Oh my! No, I just Oh my! Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Same thing. Snakes. Right, right, right. Snakes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Bats. Ah. Snakes. These type of things is also forbidden. We can understand why. Yeah, we I mean nowadays. Coronavirus. Yeah, I mean like I know this is a, a timestamp on yeah. on this episode, and exactly. maybe three four years down the road, if someone's listening, yeah. you know. But yeah. it, it's scary. It really it's coming is. from bats, and and I mean as a human, I think there should be just a, a, a we draw a line somewhere. And yeah. all due respect to anybody out there yeah. that that eats whatever they want, yeah, yeah. but I think as humans, I don't feel like humans. Whether you want to say we came from uh, Adam and Eve or we came from evolution, yeah. I don't feel like either either scenario yeah. we were meant to eat everything out there. Sure, sure. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. the The Prophet Muhammad is described so, so, in the Quran as Essentially, the Prophet Muhammad is described as a person or the Prophet Muhammad is described as an individual who permits and calls to pure substances. Mm. So as a result... With the, the permission of God. By the, by the revelation of the Almighty. By the revelation. So, for example, dietary restrictions, uh, one of the greater goals is for the greater good of mm. that individual, mm -hmm. both intellectually, physically, and especially spiritually. And the saying goes, you are what you eat. It might be very true on a scientific level and also on a philosophical level, among other things as well. Interesting. So the Prophet Muhammad is described as one who, who calls towards pure things, mm -hmm. and that is of his nature, and that the Almighty only accepts that which is pure. So in Allah, the Almighty is the most pure. Right. Wa so with that in mind, when we think of this matter, we also think of the character of the Prophet Muhammad. Mm -hmm and what's described as him and other prophets of God in the criterion of Islamic theologians is that they, they are free from um, mischief, they are free from illicit mannerism, and they are also free from illicit acts. And in the field of illicit acts, this can, includes dietary components. And that in the Islamic theology, the ambassadors of the Almighty do, do not commit major faults and major sins. These are also included. So this is a scope that is, when we talk about dietary restrictions, we're, we're essentially talking about the initial message. So the initial message is talking about the dietary restriction in swine and dunab and minas sabah, lions and tigers and bears. You said, oh my, oh right? my, yeah. yeah. <laughs> As, you know, spiders and um, snakes and these type of things. because it's, Alligators. Uh, yeah, generally speaking, yeah. Uh, it is unless a time of crisis. Unless a time of crisis, yeah. exactly. We're talking about a normative sense. Right. Um, because it's a representation of the purity of the message, right? It's the representation what? of the consciousness of what is behind that. 
because what you eat affects your body, mm-hmm. what you eat affects your psyche, and what you eat essentially affects your, your spirituality as well. Similarly, intoxicants are oh, discussed, yeah. you know. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. going to actually be my next question. But before yeah. I get to that, yeah. um, tell me, what did the prophet eat on a day-to-day basis? Sure. So generally speaking, the prophet, his normative diet yeah. was very simple. Yeah, it consisted of dates. Mm. And dates, fiber is tremendous. The benefits of its natural sugars and carbohydrates is perfect. He ate a lot of dates. He ate lots of dates, and he drank water. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, what's interesting, I said dates and water is because Aisha, she said, sometimes for months on end, no fire or kindle of heat would be started to cook bread or something in the house of the Prophet Muhammad. So that's what he lived on for months on end, though he had the ability to eat the most luxurious foods, but right. he chose not to. And that's why... Did he not to set an example, or yeah, was it just... Yeah, so he did not to because he would utilize the funds and means that he had for others to benefit from. Okay, so he had the ability to be the richest man. He had the ability to have the most beautiful woman. He had the ability to have the, the largest house. The greatest power. The greatest power. He had the ability to do everything, and none of that he did. So his clothing was very simple, very simple clothing. His diet for months on end was just dates and water, okay, though he had the ability to do otherwise. He could have built the most luxurious house, but his house was small. His rooms, they were rooms. They weren't houses. They mm. were just rooms. That's why Hassan al-Basri, he was a tabi'i from the students of the companions. He said, I stood up in the house, uh, the room of the Prophet Muhammad in my head, basically, or I could touch almost the, the roof, the ceiling. the ceiling, just by standing. So it's a small home. And that home is where he's buried now oh. in Medina. Yeah, that's where he was buried. And he passed away in the lap of his wife, Aisha, and he asked that he be buried in the place for which he passed, and that was in the house, the room. So now when you go to Medina, and you go visit the grave of the Prophet Muhammad, that place where he's buried is essentially where his, his room was. That's where his house was, his room was. And it was right next door to the mosque. And just between it and the mosque was a small screen. And he'd just go into the mosque and he'd come back to his room. That was his room. It was room. connected? Very much so. Oh, wow, yeah, yeah, mashallah. Yeah, 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 very much so. I mean, you would think that's... Yeah, yeah. That's what, I mean, he is the prophet. He is the prophet. MashaAllah. So, so, yeah, his diet. So it's very simple. He would eat what was offered. Did people bring him gifts? They did, they did. And any time a person comes, let's say there was a drought or something, they say, Prophet Muhammad, we have food for you. We've cooked. He'll bring all the people with him to go eat. That's why in the field of miracles in Mm -hmm. Islamic thought and theology, uh, Alamat al-Nubu, what's called, you find a number of, uh, prophetic traditions that teach the Prophet Muhammad, you know, feeding hundreds of people on end with just a bowl of food or um, uh, quenching the thirst of hundreds and hundreds of people while they're in a caravan, while they're traveling just with a bowl of water, the humans and the animals that they had on numerous occasions or just some dates and you get uh, tens of hundreds of people that come eat dates. Yeah, just a bowl of dates and everyone fills their tummy. So you have all of these blessings Right, and um, for Muslims, they argue as proof of prophethood. Uh, these things that are abnormal, as a sign the supportive of this individual that he is representing truth. Mm-hmm. Similarly, you have things like Jesus did, Ali and Moses. Um, signs in of itself are not, or miracles in themselves are not 
the the uh, criterion of truth of the individual um, it's actually supportive it goes back to who the person is so if the person is righteous and he calls for goodness and he doesn't call for uh, evil or transgression or self-praise or self-worship and these things these are signs of piety mm. so if a person is doing unique things as definitely as a representation of some type of divine support this is what is argued in traditional texts yeah well, that was very interesting. Oh, uh, it's, yeah. I didn't know. I, I knew that his his eating was very simple, but I didn't know that it was it was like that. I mean, it, did he did he eat meat? Yeah, so and he, drink milk. He, yeah, yeah. He occasionally would drink milk, but he would share it with others. He'd occasionally eat meat, but he would share it with others. He would occasionally have barley, aqit. Um, aqit is like yogurt based cheese cheeses. Mm. Occasional um, foods that are found in that region of the world during that time. But again, as a, a normative sense or normative diet, like Aisha said, it was just dates and water. It would just live Maybe off Maybe I should try that. Yeah, yeah. Get me healthy. Get you healthy. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. All right. So the big question, you know, Muslims don't drink, yeah. right? And I've been asked that hundreds of times. And yeah. obviously for the obvious reasons, there's certain things. But, yeah. you know, is is it ever permissible when we talk to me about it? You know, yeah. why is alcohol and Muslims such a big thing out there? Yeah, sure. In a normative sense, this is what we're talking about. In a normative sense, Muslims are advised to stay away from alcohol. Mm -hmm. Not in a dire strait. In a dire strait, it's a different conversation. If it is required at that time, health-wise or something of this nature, just some legitimate purpose, it's right. a different discussion. No water, it's only beer. Yeah, yeah, you something like some that. Yeah. Yeah. You ask yourself, uh, is it worth it or not? And will it, will it be helpful for me? Yeah. Or will it make me more thirsty? Or whatever it is. Right, right, right. But in a normative sense... It's not. It's it extreme. Yeah, yeah. Advise not to. That's one. Number two, um, if there is like non alcoholic beer, non alcoholic yeah. drinks that have, you know, 0.1% alcohol still in it, or even point, or even just 1%. Yeah. That's okay. It's a different story. Okay. What we're talking about, or similarly, you have cans that have alcohol in it, is to preserve beans or something. Like, it has uh, like a very minimal kombucha. amount. So I don't know. It has like a very minimal amount just to preserve the, the food or in the can or whatever it may yeah. be. The pressure that's found within it, that's okay. That's something else. It's a different discussion. I we're just learned the other day, spearmint gum has a little bit in there. Okay. Uh, yeah. 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 That's a different discussion. That's okay, among other things. But the concept for which alcohol, which is, you know, it's purely alcohol, mm -hmm. etc. Yes, it is true that Muslims are taught to stay away from. And alcohol is an interesting thing because alcohol is a gateway. It's known as a gateway drink. Okay. And as a gateway drink, what happens is sometimes a person enters a gate. And after they enter, they, it's hard to return back. Okay, and what does that mean? You know, you start to lose your your normative stature that you're in, and as a result, people commit mishaps that they might usually not do. Or it's potentially, they could do that. They, yes, yeah. potentially. And what happens is over time, it becomes very serious mm -hmm. for some people, and as a result, they do, you know, maybe murder, or if they've done... Zina, we say, you know, adultery, or they've done transgressions of some sort. Or tell me if this, if you've heard of this, yeah. um, in America and a lot of Western countries, they yeah. say money is the root of all evil. Uh -huh. um, in Islam, they say that alcohol is the root of all evil because it's the root of all evil because if you, like you said, if you drink, 
um, you know, or let's say you sin just normally yeah, without yeah. drinking. You yeah, may yeah. steal, you may lie, you may yeah, yeah. Uh, hurt somebody, you may yeah, you know, yeah. you know, big stuff too. Um, but if you're drunk, yeah. you may do all those things. Yeah. Is yeah. this some, is that a true saying in yeah. Islam? Um, um, or is that something culturally that's popped uh, yeah, up in the Middle cultural. East? Yeah, it's cultural. It's okay. cultural. Uh, to say Islam is, is difficult to say that. But the meaning is is it has has relevance, mm-hmm. just like you said, because you can end up committing three, four things and right. doing wrong. You lose your, your sensibilities, your basic sensibilities, if you reach especially a certain point of drinking. Right. So you can understand sickness and mm-hmm. kidney issues and um, t- intestine issues and uh, the concept of appendix issues and all types of things. That's why you're always in the doctor. They always ask, do you smoke and do you drink and how often? There are Even here in the Western world. In the Western world, that's what yeah. we do. Yeah. You know, I was uh, just in the emergency room a few days ago. And I get to ask you those questions. You know, I bet you drink? they were surprised that you said no, <laughs> yeah, that said, you no, don't drink. I said no, I don't drink. I literally yet. said that in front of somebody, and some random person <laughs> uh, was walking, and he stopped. Yeah. And he looked at me, and he said, how? <laughs> <laughs> I said, how what? He's like, how do you not drink? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, I just, you know, I didn't want to go into detail yeah, about it. Yeah, I said, yeah. I just, I don't drink. I'm not a drinker. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, in a normative sense, that's what's being discussed. And... Um, you know, lots of stories about a person that was drinking and what they did and, and maybe how they reacted and they yeah. ended up doing something just outrageous, things like that, you know. And that's that's an interesting thing because in the end, Islam is trying to teach you to preserve yourself and to preserve your, uh, your honor and your nobility. Mm-hmm. Uh, the issue with al- alcohol is sometimes you start to lose that. And then you commit things again that are not noble yeah. and not honorable. And as a result, I'm just going to share this just for our thoughts. There are some other books that are uh, for people that believe in certain faith mm-hmm. approaches. In their texts, they talk about prophets of God or messengers of God that drank alcohol. Mm. Okay, And um, when they drank, they ended up committing quite a bit of uh, outrageous things. You're and, referring to like the Bible, right? Uh, without getting into certain textbooks, yeah. You want to be respectful, yeah. okay, but I see. people that in Islamic thought, like the prophets of God and Abraham and Jacob, for example, or Lot, prophet mm. Lot, or especially Lot, because there are references to, to them yeah. that, you know, some of them got, or Noah, and some of them got drunk, and when they got drunk, they did bad things mm-hmm. with their daughters or something like that, and Things that for Muslims, they don't accept that these ambassadors of God in any way could fall into and to, to even more so having done that. And after doing that, being in a gateway, they started to do even out more outrageous things. So you're saying the Prophet, peace be upon him, never drank? So Prophet Muhammad, he never drank. Even yeah. before he became a prophet? Even if before he became a prophet. Oh, Similarly sure. for the Muslims, they believe that, you know, Moses, he didn't drink or Jesus didn't drink as well. Even before they became prophets? Even, even before. What we know of them as ambassadors of God, they didn't drink. Um, the, the issue with the narratives that are attributed to maybe Lot, Prophet Lot and mm-hmm. Prophet Jacob and Noah is they were prophets of God and they drank. And then after they drank, they got drunk. And after they got drunk, some of them did you know pretty outrageous things. And that some we of the other texts? Talk about. Yeah, some uh, other texts. Yeah. Other than Islam? Yeah, other than Islam. We'll, we'll go ahead and skip on that yeah, yeah. Um, out of respect for, for others. Yeah. And I understand. Well, that's interesting. I, you know, I, I knew some of these things, but I didn't know um, all of it. And thank you for well, sharing that you. with a lot of people because a lot of people are, are always wondering why I don't drink. And now I have more reasons to tell them. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> all right. So we're done talking about that. And we're going to go into marriage and dating here in the U.S. And, and this is why I appreciate the fact that, you know, you're – 
you know, not in your 50s and 60s. You know, you're in your, yeah. how old are you? I'm 33. Thank you for disclosing yeah. that. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. you didn't have to. but <laughs> That's you could. okay. So you're, you know, you're young enough to understand, you know, that some of these things, yeah. right? And you're not like, oh, you know, I'm so old that I forgot about this yeah, stuff. Yeah, you're yeah. young and you know yeah. about these things. And so, you know, it's hard for Muslim Americans to date, right? Yeah. And the word dating, I mean, I always grew up that that was a, not a, even a concept, right? Yeah. And <laughs> that to date and, yeah, yeah. and that the dating process actually came about post engagement or at least some sort of like interaction between both parents, yeah. everybody knowing about it. So my first question to you is what is the rules behind dating? Okay. Okay. In general, I think the discussion here is just understanding the respects between the genders mm. in, in a very traditional Islamic thought. Okay. The, the short narrative of yes. it is to keep everything professional. Okay. Okay. That's, I think that's the short narrative of it all. Between a male and female, you got to keep everything professional. In school, in work, wherever you're in, in sports, whatever it is that you do. So how does a person find a woman that, or a woman find a man that they're going to marry? Yeah. If they don't date. Yeah. So that's what uh, I think, again, if we think of keeping it professional, mm -hmm. I think you can learn a lot about a, about a person. Okay. By keeping it professional. Um, I think you can learn a lot while also not committing to some extreme that maybe you tend to overexpose yourself. And if that happens and say something breaks up yeah. and that person already experienced everything about you and then they're going to go chat it up with other someone else and, and mm. they'll build, you know, and they start to harm you and, and things like that. It works both ways for men and women and women and men. Exactly. And that's why there is a prophetic tradition that uh, the disclosure of a person's personal uh, personal respects is one of the worst disgraceful things a person can fall into when they start to disclose people's personal things. Mm. So like you're saying, I mean, let's just be blunt here. Yeah, go ahead. Um, if somebody had intimacy. Yeah. Um, sexual intimacy yeah. with a partner yeah. and things ended up breaking up between them and then they go and talk about it to other people yeah. it's you're saying is pretty bad that's one example yes oh, that's okay. super bad yeah right yeah super bad that's super bad and super sad and I grew up in the states and I went to school yeah, uh, yeah. Stuff like that and uh, I know what people talk about right um Okay, I was I played sports, okay. and sometimes they're not even necessarily trying to harm the other person, but them just talking yeah, about it and bragging about, bragging it, or, about it, or just conversating about it exactly. is is harmful. Oh yeah, bragging about it, conversating about it. I know what happens in the locker rooms. Yeah, right? I I played basketball. I you know I did these things, and uh, at an American high school. Yeah, American yeah, at CV. high school. Yeah, I went to CV. I played yeah. I played basketball in CV, and then in college I was I was training with the community college, just playing basketball with them. Mashallah. I decided not to follow through on it and these things, but I know what things go around, and I know the mindset of many males and uh, the way people act in, in front of people and then what they do behind their backs. Mm. And stuff like that. It's disgraceful. It's completely disgraceful. And anyone, if you think about it in one way, would you want that to happen to your own sister or even more so your daughter or your mother? <sighs> you know, it's, it's super sad to see that. And that's why nobility is very important. And that's why I recommend brothers and especially sisters just to keep everything professional. Mm-hmm. And when that 
right person comes into your life and they're worthy of your commitment, right? They're worthy of your commitment in times of hardship, in times of ease, in times of richness, and in times of poverty, then they're the right person. If they don't have those qualities, you got to ask yourself, you know, why would, why would you want to put yourself in a very dynamic circumstance? Okay, so that's why, and it's traditional Islamic thought, we, we like to keep things professional, hmm. right? I like that. Next question. Sure. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna so now we cover dating. Let's yeah. go into marriage. Okay. Um, are Muslims allowed to marry people of other faiths? Yeah. So in a traditional sense, males are permitted to marry people of the book, Jews and mm. Christians. Okay. In a traditional sense, um, that's where the leeway is. As for uh, the female. Generally speaking, most scholars throughout history disallowed that. Okay. Yeah, they said to stick to your, to your faith base. You might ask, why is the difference here? Yeah. Uh, because in a traditional sense, throughout humankind, for the mass, vast majority of it, males were kind of the heads of the house. Mm-hmm. And obviously that term is very, it's a very loose term. Especially nowadays. Especially nowadays. Yeah. And, and even back then, I mean... Um, but you usually homes, you're saying that throughout history and and into today, yeah, into today, the kids follow what the father is um, culturally, religiously, yeah, yeah, last we, name. Yeah, what, what I'm really for the most part. Yeah, so what I'm trying to get to is that why there was leeway for the males to marry a Christian or Jew yeah. is because in Islam, Muslims mm-hmm. respect their prophets of God and they believe in their prophets of God. So they believe in Jesus, and they believe in Moses. A Muslim man marries a Christian. She doesn't have to become Muslim. She doesn't have to become Muslim. Or Jewish or whoever. Yeah, she doesn't have to become Muslim if she's Christian. She doesn't have to become Muslim if she's Jew. Um, Their messengers, their prophets, their books won't be disrespected by the Muslim man in this regard. Similarly, with that in mind, uh, we also have to understand something that if this is the case— and the Muslim man is not going to disrespect their religion. They're not going to disrespect the prophet. They're not going to disrespect their books. That also means they won't be disrespecting or pushing away or having any form of pressure if they start to worship a certain way or choose to worship things in a certain way. Who? The, the, the Christian, Yeah, the oh. Christian female or, or Jewish male. Jewish the, female. Yeah, the Jewish female, pardon me. With that in mind, also we should take into consideration something that... The man who is a Muslim might have secondary ritualistic practices that might not be practiced by the Christian or Jew. So he's not allowed to request them to practice these things unless Mm -hmm. they choose to do so. So there was a a, a level of respect that was in between. The opposite spectrum, on the other hand, where in a traditional sense where a female, hypothetically assuming is a Muslim, and she marries a person from a book, it does occur. Okay, and nowadays, sometimes it does occur around the world. Where a female, a female Muslim, Muslim marries... Yeah, she marries a male who's either Christian or Jew. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's true. But for the vast majority of Islamic history, that didn't happen. So with that in mind, what happens now is we have to ask ourselves, obviously, the, in the man of the family, does he recognize the Prophet Muhammad as a prophet of God or not? Mm. Okay, and... There are a number of things that are requested of the female, Muslima, Muslima in Arabic means a female Muslim, mm-hmm. um, that are part of her practice or her religion. 
Will the man be supportive of that? You know, will the man respect that? Will the man respect the Prophet Muhammad? Will the man say the Prophet Muhammad is a prophet of God or not? Whereas on the other hand, Muslims will say Jesus is a messenger of God, right? right? Yeah. Muslims will say Moses is a messenger of God. And they respect them and they say that both of them are going to be going to paradise and those followers of them and truth will be going to paradise as well. That's what Muslims teach. Right. But on the other hand, no, if you're a Muslim, in a traditional sense, you won't be a person of paradise, right? In that Wait, secondary uh, view. Uh, if, if, yeah, oh. in, in a traditional perspective of maybe uh, some people of the book, their view about Islam or Muslims. Uh, is, so other, other than Muslims yeah. may think, and not all, but some may think that Muslims are not necessarily going to paradise. Yes, correct. Or yeah. Prophet Muhammad. Or Prophet Muhammad. Or believe in or, him. Or, 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 believe in him or the Quran okay. or anything of that nature. Okay. But we also have to understand something. What do we mean when, when we say Christian? Because maybe he's a Christian monotheist. Mm. If he's a Christian monotheist, he's, he's most probably, Allahu Alam, is a Muslim. Right. And she marries him. That's not the dilemma. What we're talking about is potentially a circumstance where a Trinitarian Christian marries a Muslim woman, for example. That's a secondary discussion. Why do we make, need to make the difference? Is because a Christian monotheist being a Muslim is essentially what Muslims argue was the message of Jesus, which mm -hmm. was Islam. Okay. Okay, and that's why that we talked about it shortly um, in our other other uh, sessions of our podcast about the Ibuanites, the early Christians who believed Jesus wasn't God. Um, the Jacobites, the uh, Nazarites as well, and these are people that um, uh, groups that lived after Jesus for hundreds of years, Christian monotheists, as I have said, prior to the Council of Nicaea in the, in the 320th year approximately. And what happens is, with regard to that, in that period, Arianism existed as well, and that all stemmed off of the Christian monotheistic perspective. That's why in the Quranic, in the Prophet Muhammad's history, when he first received revelation, he argues, by Angel Gabriel, his wife took him, advised him to go meet her uncle who or cousin who was a scholar of the Christian faith who lived in the Arabian Peninsula, mm. who spoke Arabic fluently and spoke Hebrew fluently in forms of Aramaic as well. Waraq ibn Nawfal was his name. And she took Prophet Muhammad to him, and she tells him, listen to the narrative of, as to what happened to Prophet Muhammad as to his first revelation. Because what happened, the Prophet Muhammad would, prior to his claim to prophethood and the revelation, on periods of the year, he would, he would uh, want to leave the city life and go live abroad, outside of the city, to get a chance to ponder over things more to ponder and, and to meditate. And he fed, he fed the poor during that period. And he did all these things. And during that period, one of those periods, Muslims hold the view that Archangel Gabriel visits him by the order of the Almighty mm. and bestows upon him the words of the Almighty as a messenger and revelation. The first verses of the Quran, right? Recite in the name of your Lord, who is the creator, subhanahu wa ta'ala. Subhanahu He created the human being from akram. Such beautiful words, Yani. So as you can understand, the first verses of the Quran is to read, is to recite in the name of the Almighty, subhanahu wa ta'ala the creator of the heavens and the earth. So what happens is this is the scenario, and 
Uh, long story short, the Prophet tells Angel Jibreel and this inspiration that's happening, I'm not one who is able to recite and read as you expect because uh, the traditional view of Prophet Muhammad was he was an illiterate man. Yeah. فغمضي, فغمضي, he, uh, غمني, he Essentially, I was overtaken by a squeeze until like I was just about to, my body was about to usurp me so he left me and then he ordered me to recite again until the recitation became part of my nature mm. he started to recite verses that he didn't know beforehand that's why in the Quran it says uh, these Quranic verses are a reply to some of the argumentations against the Prophet Muhammad at his time that those argumentations were requesting the Prophet Muhammad to not recite anymore, to stay quiet. Hmm. And then he said, you know that I used to, the Quranic ayah is saying, I have lived with you for a long period of time beforehand. And I wasn't able beforehand to recite these things. Yeah. Now I'm being able to recite this. You know very well, I was never able to do this. How is it that you how don't believe it, me? Yeah, how yeah. is it now I'm able to recite these right. things and you cannot, you know? Why would I retract now if I'm doing something that's very yeah. unique? And you know it's unique. And the message is, is helpful. So what happens is the Prophet Muhammad... Um, his wife believed him? Yeah, so he goes, his wife hears this. Her argumentation was first, the message was, was unique. It was correct. It was pure. Hmm. Second, the one who's claiming it is also unique and good. Because she tells him, because when he came to her and he tells her, uh, uh, I'm in a state of fear. Something unique has happened to me. And she hears the narrative from him and she says, uh, Don't worry, the Almighty will never disgrace you. Why, she says, This is prior to revelation, is because you, you make important the respects between family ties, mm. and you help the one that is in need Okay, you are helpful for the ones that are in need. The, the wayfarer that is in distress, you help them. You take care of the orphans and the poor. And she lists all of these things. No human being that does that and is amin and trustworthy right. is going to start to fabricate things. All and on, of a sudden. All of a sudden. And then on top of it, you're reciting these things that I've lived with you for 20 years. People have lived with you for 40 years. And we so know you'd saying, never be able to do this. So this is something unique. His wife was the first person she, to she's believe the first, She was the first one. Was she Christian? She was, we can't argue she is Christian. What we can, because it has to be based upon a fact, okay. a, a historical fact. We can argue that she was extremely spiritual and believed in the, exist, in the existence of the Almighty. Because I know at the time they were worshiping uh, idols. Uh, not, not the prophet himself. Yeah, yeah. I know he never did, but uh, the people, the yeah, Quraysh people, people in Mecca and stuff like that, they were, they yeah. were worshiping idols and stuff. So Yeah, so many Quraishites, they... Uh, knew who Allah was, okay. but they had placed intermediaries, oh, yeah, in which they okay. prayed to these intermediaries and stuff like that. To pray to God. To God, yeah. So mm. his intermediary. Um, and was she like that? So we don't. what we know of her, it seems like she was inclined towards the Hanafi, or we say Ahnaf method, methodology. Hanifa, Hanifa. 
this Hanifa methodology was the methodology of Abraham. Uh-huh. Because in a historical sense, Muslims argue the Kaaba, the mosque of right. prayer, was built by Abraham and his son Ishmael. And it was... For those listeners out there who's wondering what the Kaaba is, it's where Mecca, it's in the city of Mecca, and it's the big black box that Muslims yeah. go and perform pilgrimage yeah, at. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure many of you out there have seen yeah. it. So Continue. Yeah, it's a place of worship. So people, yeah. they go inside, inside of it, and they pray like a regular prayer. There are right. no statues inside or anything like that. Yeah. So as I was saying is that um, with regard to that matter, um, Abraham and Ismail is arguably in a historical sense were the ones who built it and uh, the Quraysh, not the Qurayshites, but the Arabs of that region would uh, preserve it over time. But over time, they started to add things to it, forms of polytheism and stuff mm. like that. So the name Allah was still prevalent and there were still few people who believed in God uh, as a monotheist. Okay. Okay, so potentially Khadija was one of them. Allahu alam, the Almighty knows best. There's tawaqqaf here. So anyways, with that in mind, you know, he says this to her and she believes in him. And uh, she says, let's, let's reaffirm your narrative. I have a scholarly uncle who um, is worthy of an individual to have a discussion with. Who is her uncle or cousin? Waraq ibn Nawfal. Waraq ibn Nawfal was a person who migrated to Palestine mm. early on. He was an old man then. When, when she said, let's go talk to him, he was blind already. He was an old, old man. Um, as a result, what had happened was, anyways, in a historical sense, he went to Palestine because he was frustrated with the, the polytheistic worship and he was wanting to find truth. He went to Palestine and he finds them the religion of Jesus. So bear in mind, this is about uh, 455 years or so after Jesus, a.s. Okay. And this is approximately 130 years after the Council of Nicaea. Council of Nicaea is where, again, we said that. Uh, the trinitarianism trinitarianism became trinitarianism became a a basis of belief and becoming a, do- a doctrine per se okay. and they wanted to unify the christian faith into this uh, trinitary perspective so he goes there and he studies and what happens is he actually meets with scholars that are christian monotheists they don't hold the view of the trinitarian perspective and he learns from them, he becomes a Christian, and he picks up the languages, studies Hebrew and stuff like this. So he studied the Injil, the Bible, and stuff like these things that were there. Scriptures, forms of the scriptures that were there. Uh, because the Bible was still, in our present day form, wasn't still set at that time. What we have in the Bible now, at that time, it wasn't still put together okay. like that form that we have it now. So anyways, he comes back, and this is how he lives. Now she takes him to this individual, and Prophet Muhammad goes to him, and they sit and they talk, and he hears the narrative from him. And Waraka tells him that this is namus This is the namus. And namus is one who carries beneficial narratives in a secretive form. Mm. He says this is the this is the revelation carried, similarly to Moses, and similarly to Jesus. Okay. And then he goes on to say, you, any person who came with this type of narrative in history, he would be, um, uh, there would be adawa towards him. There would be, people would show animosity towards him. And uh, they would push him out of his land, try to push him away, try to push him out of his land. Look to what happened to Jesus, look what happened to Moses, and these narratives. So he's saying this is what happened to all of them. So your people are going to do the same thing to you. And then he says, and uh, you know, literally, I wish I was younger. 
So um, I can live to see that day and Ansurka Nasr al-Mu'azzara. I would go ahead and help you and support you and protect you to the highest level of my ability. He knew right away. Yeah, he knew. But then he said, but what happened is the narrators, the historical narrative said that he passed away. Mm-hmm. Afterwards, shortly afterwards, he passed away and he didn't live to see what happened to the Prophet Muhammad. So that was the, was the initial situation of the Prophet Muhammad. So his wife is the one who took him to this man. That's correct. Yeah. So, so back to about wives and yeah, stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, I do want to ask some so we, questions. We, yeah, the, the point behind that, yeah. Yeah, we said that uh, Christian monotheist is a different narrative versus a Trinitarian Christian. Mm. So a Christian monotheist, if he were to want to marry a sister, is a different topic in fiqh, but a Trinitarian wanting to marry a Muslim sister is a, is another question in fiqh. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. I'm glad that you uh, kind of clarified that. Sure. So next question is going to be, um, is it true that Muslim men can marry more than one woman? Okay. So. And what are the guidelines behind it? Yeah. The basis in Islamic thought, like Imam al-Shafi'i, he said, is one man, one woman. Okay. So the basis is that one man, one woman. That's what Imam al-Shafi'i said. He said, that's the basis. Okay. And the Quran has a number of verses that indicate that in such a way. As for the concept of four wives, yeah. this is a concept that is um, not in a normative sense. In the normative sense, one man, one woman. Non-normative sense is dire strait. There's a war, um, right? Men have passed away in wars, which in history happened quite a bit. And as a result, the male population reduced and left with females, most, mostly females. So what happens to uh, a female at that time? If you just say one man, one woman, obviously there'll be some that will be left out. And the repercussions for that is the needs will be left out as well and there could be lots of problems that come about okay mm-hmm. so this was one example in a time of war for example uh in a time of population crisis for example anyways like i said the normative sense is that it was one man one woman and that's what imam shafi said the exception if you're able to deal with justly if you're able to be to deal justly and you have the ability and funds and it's like a, there's a dire need, like war and these things. There was there was legitimately a leeway. So there has to be a, a need. You yeah. can't just be like, hey, it's time for wife number two. Yeah, yeah. And hey, it's it, time for wife number three. Yeah, so you have to have the ability, and uh, there has to be a legitimate understanding behind it. Uh, this, I would argue, is the, um, this is the, as I have said, like Imam Shafi, rahimahullah ta'ala, is saying that this is basically the normative, normative position. Okay. Yes. I have a, I have a, this is going to be a tough question. Yeah, sure. All right, and I'm glad that you're going to be the one to answer it because a lot yeah. of people and a lot of stuff online, it's all miscued and misinterpreted and misrepresented. Yeah. So you probably already know where I'm going with this. Did the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, marry a girl who was nine years old? It's hard for anyone to say yes, and that's why I think it's a mistake what people are saying online. Okay. But to say, yes, he married a girl that was nine years old. It's hard to say that. Okay. To be certain. Right. Okay. Why? Is because there are a number of things to take into consideration. Information that is talked about and they are number-based 1,500 years ago doesn't always mean what it meant then and how it means now. Right. Like the, the number 70 
or 90 or 99. These are terms, if you read a certain prophetic text or the Quran, sometimes or خَيْرٌ مِنْ أَلْفِ شَهْرٍ You have as well a thousand إِنَّ يَوْمِكَ عِنْدَ رَبِكَ أَلْفِ سَنَةٍ مِمَّا تَحُدُّونَ These large numbers that are arguably in a linguistic sense mentioned by a number of scholars is trying to indicate a large sum but not necessarily that precise number that is mentioned. Okay, so some of the things for the listeners who don't speak Arabic, some of the things you just said were there's mentions in the Quran where it says it's, you know, doing this is greater than a thousand months. Or if you need to ask forgiveness, repent 70 times. Or they give specific numbers, but you're telling me that it's just to represent a lot and not necessarily that exact amount. Yes, I'll give you an example. Like the Prophet ﷺ, he said, إِنَّ لِلَّهِ سُبْحَانَ وَتَعَلَىٰ تِسْعَ وَتِسْعُونَ إِسْمًا مَنْ أَحْصَاهَا دَخَلَ الْجَنَّةُ وَكَمَا قَالْ that the Almighty has, if you were to translate like in, in the way we might translate now, mm-hmm. or in the way that we speak now, okay, the Almighty has 99 names and attributes. Find them, learn them, believe in them. Whoever does so enters into paradise. Mm-hmm. So some of these names and attributes, the merciful, the great Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim, right. the Malik Al-Quddus, the, the generous, the forgiving, the forbearing, the caring, subhanahu wa ta'ala, the uh, pure, subhanahu wa ta'ala, the merciful well, there's a bunch. many of them yeah does that mean the almighty doesn't have other names and attributes more than 99 the response is no he the does. almighty he does probably things that we don't even know about exactly so the almighty is very unique subhanahu wa ta'ala mm-hmm. the prophet said so the prophet indicated there are more so they're not just 99 right subhanahu wa ta'ala it has more names than that so the so age of so this yeah, so, so 99, would would, what I'm trying to say is that 99 is a large number. Right. All right, it's a large number. And really the narrative, inshallah, you can take a little if you'd like, but the the narrative is very much saying to um, ponder over the Almighty and believe in the Almighty and study the names and attributes of God that are mentioned in the Quran so you can increase your faith. And right. by knowing someone more, you have more love towards him, mm-hmm. subhanahu wa ta'ala, subhanahu ta'ala, and believing in him, subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this example, with many other examples, sometimes the number itself isn't necessarily what's intended like we understand it now. Mm-hmm. Um, seven days a week, right? seven days a week. Why seven days a week? Why, is, why are numbers repeated in the week? Why shouldn't it just be um, now we're in day number such and such? 76 history. or 365. Yeah, yeah. 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 They say, why always go back day one is Monday and Tuesday? And we always yeah. make it a circular movement. Well, seven in, in, a, in a Judaic perspective is a representation of a completion of time, a completion of a circuit. Okay? Check. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're good. You're good. Huh? Inshallah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, right. yeah. It's a completion of a circuit, of a completion of a, a, a circuit of something, starting and returning. That's what it was representing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so as for this thing about the age of Aisha being nine years old, as I have said, Okay, uh, we have to take into consideration two things. And number one is what is meant by nine here. Okay, like Imam Shafi and among others. Uh, I'll get into many details. Is nine here actually mean nine, or does it mean an age of maturity? If you say it's actually nine, does it mean that she meant 
uh, from zero to nine, or did, does it mean that she, it meant when she migrated and then counted nine years, or mm. when she matured and then she counted nine years, or she starts to count at a certain time because this was prevalent in the Arabian Peninsula? They, they did they, that. Yeah, they didn't count like we counted mm. for a number of cultures there. The way we count, right? We have one, two, three, based right. upon the first day of our birth and these things. Some other people in certain cultures, and you find this many places, they start to count differently. For example, a basic one is they don't count one as the first day you're in your arm, one years old. No. Once you complete the year, now you get into one year. Right. Yeah, it's not two. You find that in many and Asian even countries. In the, well, in the Middle East, too. Like, um, For example. Like they, they say, how old are you? And I tell them I'm you know, 32. Yeah. And the person who was literally born a month before me, same year, same yeah, yeah. will be like, I'm 33. I'm like, how are you 33? Yeah, He's yeah. like, well, I finished yeah, 32, and yeah. now I'm in the 33, yeah. 33rd year. And yeah, so I yeah. understand. Yeah. So anyways, long story stuff short. Stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Long story short, so Islamic historians and stuff, there are differences of opinion. Um, some say she was nine years old, but when they say nine years old, she was mature. She was a woman. Mm -hmm. um, life then was different. Life then was shorter. Life then, um, you're in the middle of the desert. Okay. Medicine isn't like medicine now, and lifespan right. isn't like lifespan now, and lifetime is shortened, and it's a very distressful time, and there's wars, and there's heat, and there's famine, and sickness. And, and that was a common practice all the over yeah, the world. There's no doubt about that. I mean, yeah, Europeans yeah. were marrying uh, younger girls and stuff like Here that. In the States, just 100 years ago, it's, it's the same exact thing, even certain states now. Right, but it was always after the age of maturity. After the age of maturity. It was never when they were no, no, children or anything yeah, no, like that. And I, I want people to know that, yeah, you know, because yeah, yeah. it's frustrating when people come to me and, and they're, like, so interested. They're like, I read this thing online. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, listen, first off, check your sources. Yeah, yeah. And second, you know, the interpretation of this, you know, like you yeah, said, yeah. you know. And uh, and, and, and I, I tell them all the time, I say, if the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, awesome. would move rocks out of the road so that when people pass behind him, yes. they would have a clear path. Do you really think someone like that yeah. would do something so exactly. harmful yeah. Yeah, exactly. and, and crazy? And, and like I said, and plus it was a common practice exactly. around the world to marry girls over 12, 13, 10, yeah, yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. And so but this the, is nothing The thing different. is, as I was going to build, just like you said, yeah. 12, 13, etc., and that brings us to the second opinion in a historical sense. Others say no. In a historical sense, there are narratives that indicate she's older. She right. was older than just this number nine. That's why the argument is like nine means maturity. It's not that exact number. Right. Others say she was 13. Others say she was 16. Others say she was 17 and up. So those are all observations. The teachings that I grew up in and, and I'm in Jordan and the, the, the religion, they, they said that he mentioned that he wanted to marry her when she was nine but didn't actually do the, the complete marriage and her start living with him and stuff until she was 13, 14. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. And so, you know, that was that was something that, and I try to explain that to people, and yeah. sometimes people just, even though they don't physically have their finger in their ears, yeah. they do. Yeah. You know, they don't want to listen, you know. But just like you said, you know. With all due respect to everybody out yeah, there, yeah, yeah. you know, I just, I wanted to clarify that because yeah. it's really a big thing for a lot of people, yeah, you is, know, yeah. they, they learn a lot about Islam and they're very interested until they get, they come across that yeah. and it almost shies them away or, or it turns them away. And I think that that's such a upsetting thing to me personally, yeah. because it's, that's just simply not the case. Yeah, and I always true. tell everybody out there that they need to check their sources. They can't be going to sites written by people of other faiths or people with no faiths yeah. to try to decipher something. I mean, I think the best source would be somebody like yourself who yeah. has Western, I mean, you've studied in Western universities about this subject. Yeah. I mean, 
put your bias aside. Yeah. You're still an educated person of Islam, exactly. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, it's hard for me to take people that don't study Islam their whole lives yeah. serious. Why would I ask somebody else about Christian? If I'm going to ask about uh, about Christianity, I'm going to go to somebody about Christianity yeah, or that, that practices Christianity, yeah. so on and so forth. Yeah. All right. So just as a side, yeah, yeah. before we Please. progress, yeah. Just for our listeners, just to understand, yeah. you had mentioned throughout history 13-year-olds, and that's yeah. very very much right. Uh, and the Catholic encyclopedias argue that Mary was 13 when she married, if you hold that view. Right. Um, <clears throat> Uh, you also have uh, Sarah in the Bible, um, who said that she was, or Elizabeth, she was uh, around seven or eight years old when she got married. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, y- you know, you have to understand. Um, you might say no, but that's an inter- interpretation. And we say that's correct. Just like this is an it's interpretation. interpretation. Yeah. yeah. So that's the thing. All right. Yeah, well, brother, um, thank you for coming back to the show. Yeah. We still have... Um, we still have a bunch of more subjects to talk about, and I hope that you can come back uh, maybe next week and we can uh, kind of wrap this uh, background of Islam and get to my favorite topic of science and nature sure. because sure. I was um, surprised the other day doing some research that there are some views in Islam that there might be other existing living people, well, I don't want to say people, creations uh-huh. out in the universe. Uh-huh. Um and I would like to hear your take on that. And uh, maybe people before us, and maybe people after us, and, and so on and sure, so forth. There's sure. a verse in the Quran that kind of indicates that there's been people before us or maybe after us. Um, and I'd like to talk to you about that. But all for you out there, you I mean, are you guys interested in hearing about what Sharia is? Do you guys want to know why and how does sacred law such as Syria interact with secular law? Does Islam view science as part of it? All these questions are going to be asked by Dr. Yusuf Wanli, inshallah, if you come back. Thank you for all your knowledge and wisdom. Once again, guys, uh, hopefully you enjoyed everything you heard. And tune in next week to answer more of these questions and what it means to be an American Muslim. And remember, as always, keep believing in yourself, and I'll see you next week.